0: I know what some of you are thinking. Jim, we did Jude 7 last week. Yes, we did. But those last five words demand more attention. You heard Joe read the text. These are exhibited as an example in undergoing those last five words, the punishment of eternal fire. You cannot blow past that. It demands exposition. It demands preaching. So we'll take a look at this text this morning. I want to start like this. What if God is not who most of the professing visible church thinks he is? What if God does not unconditionally love everyone above any and all other considerations? What if God doesn't have a wonderful plan for everyone's life? What if God hates most of what your average human being thinks, says, and does? What if God really is an awesome, fearsome, unapproachable, consuming fire god? What if God is so terrifyingly holy that no mortal can see his face and live? What if God is dreadfully provoked at the insolent rebellion of mankind, your rebellion and mine, what if, God is, what if God's anger and outrage burns against such self-important insurgency? What if God is genuinely indignant forever? It comes from Malachi 1:4. What if God is indignant forever at the arrogant sin of his haughty creatures? What if God says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord? And you have never feared him at all. In fact, you're utterly indifferent toward him every day of your life. And now I'm going to read scripture to you. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Most of you will recognize Romans 9:22 and 23. Regarding Romans 9, the text I just read. I've got a few questions here from Francis Chan's book. It's entitled Erasing Hell. These are his questions and these are my responses. This is what Francis Chan asks. Is Romans 9 saying what I think it's saying? The answer is yes, of course, it's saying exactly what you think it's saying. He asks, if this is true about God, why hasn't anyone told me this before? My answer is because the visible church is almost universally preoccupied with organizational preservation over the proclamation of the glory of God in the exercise of his sovereign purposes. Why hasn't anyone ever told me this before? That God is like this, that this is how God does business. You guys know better, you guys have been well taught. But in your average church, they don't know anything about Romans 9. No one's ever told them about Romans 9. They skip Romans 9. Nobody wants to talk about it. Here's another question of Francis Chan. Is it because the church is embarrassed of this doctrine? Yes, they're embarrassed of the doctrine. The visible church is more concerned about offending men than they are concerned with offending God. We won't preach that. People won't like that. So maybe here's a good summary. Maybe most don't want to admit that the Bible reveals a God. This is Francis Chan, who is so free that he does whatever he wants. Your average church doesn't want this God in the sanctuary. Not the God who's this free, not the God who's this holy, not the God who's this sovereign. Right. He does Whatever he pleases, this is the problem. Men insist on their freedom, but they will not allow God his. God, you can't sovereignly choose your people. We won't allow that. We don't like that. Don't teach us about that. And so we move to the second most hated doctrine in Scripture. What if the Son of God is telling us the truth? What if, as the Bible says, hell is the final destination for the vessels of wrath? And I refer you back to Jude, verse 7, last five words. What if, as Jesus says, hell really is eternal conscious punishment? What if, as Jesus depicts, hell is unimaginably horrific, beyond human description? Matthew 25, 46, Jesus calls it eternal punishment. So to borrow Chan's questions regarding the first doctrine, let's use those again. Again, Chan's questions, my responses. Is Jesus saying what I think he's saying about hell? Yes, that's exactly what he's saying. It's eternal conscious punishment. You can't mitigate it. And we'll go through that in just a few minutes. If this is true, why hasn't anyone told me about this? Because the church is not willing to talk about hard things. Your average church. Because the visible church is almost universally preoccupied with organizational preservation. Now, you know what I mean by that, right? we got to keep people coming. we got to keep offerings in the offering plate. That's our first priority. Not the glory of God in the sovereign election of his people and not the glory of God in the exhibit of his justice as he casts the sinner into hell. No, we don't want to hear about that God. Don't tell us about him. We don't want to hear that. That's not what I came to church for. I want you to pat me on the head and tickle my ears and send me home. The organizational preservation over the glory of Yahweh and the exercise of his terrifying holiness and the damnation of sinners. Is this because the church is embarrassed of this doctrine? Yes. Hell will not be taught in your average pulpit. I would say 90% 90 of the pulpits. Hell will not be taught. Not the biblical hell will not be taught. The visible church is more concerned about offending men than offending God. So we could summarize like this. Maybe most most don't want to admit that the Bible reveals a God who is so free that he does whatever he wants. And it really doesn't matter what limitations the, the average pulpit puts on God. He is unconstrained. He does all his good pleasure. It doesn't matter. As I told you last week, it doesn't matter if you like it or I like it. All that matters is, did God say it? And if it's in the Bible, he has certainly said it. Men will not tolerate a God so holy that an eternal hell is a necessity. And we'll develop that thought as we work through the sermon. So Francis Chan, he hits the nail on the head here regarding the issue of vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and regarding Jesus' words regarding eternal conscious punishment. Chan asks, Chan says these doctrines, and I love this. Chan says these doctrines push us to ask this question. Just how high is my view of God? Just how high is my view of God? Both of these doctrines drive drive the thinking person to the ground, face down. Just how high is your view of God? And so, yes, Chan is exposing the, the primary problem in what is called the modern church, a very, very low view of Yahweh. Most of the church won't allow him to be God enough to exercise his sovereign grace and salvation and holy enough to damn sinners to eternal conscious punishment. So today, we know in in your average church, a small, manageable, limited, domesticated, and effeminate God is offered up for consumption. So yeah, these, these two doctrines that I've mentioned... God's radical sovereign grace and his, the horrifying reality of eternal conscious punishment in hell. The average church will not talk about these doctrines. God has been redacted and censored by omission. You know, we know that the, the thrust of Jude is false teaching. Well, a lot of false teachers are simply false by omission. You understand what I'm saying? They just simply won't tell you all that the Bible says. So their false teaching, it's censorship by omission. We just don't ever talk about it. We don't ever talk about Romans 9. We don't ever talk about Jesus' words in in Matthew 25 about eternal conscious punishment. We don't talk about it. We never talk about it. We never bring it up. Because I'm more concerned, the average preacher, I'm more concerned that you'll be offended, that I am concerned that God will be offended. Well, I've already made this confession to you. Made it to you last week, made the week before, Right. (laughs) God's my first priority and you're my second. The sermon is my worship and I don't I don't take the edges off for anyone. Your average church doesn't want to talk about a God who is this high, this holy and this free. Right. Right. You know, I've had people say to me, well, I could never love a God who would do that or act like that or be like that. Like that matters. Like that matters. Like it matters how you feel. I told you last week, what matters is what's true. That's what matters. And a a preacher that has any integrity will stand in the pulpit and tell you what's true. Tell you what's true. God's truth is truth no matter how we feel about it. I like what Chan says about this. Francis Chan, he says, it's time to stop apologizing for God-ordained realities and start apologizing to him for our slander. What's he talking about? The slander is the fact that we have censored God in the church, by and large. Not this one. And, and, and those of you who've been here for the first two sermons of Jude, you understand, you understand the backdrop here, right? We're to contend for the faith, all of it, even the parts people hate. We're to, to contend for the faith. If you missed the first two sermons, um, I invite you to go out on YouTube and listen to them. Or you can go to my podcast site at Pastor Jim Podcast. Uh, It's out there as well. I notice as I begin to prepare uh, the sermon here based on verse 7 of Jude, um, we see those last five words there in verse 7. Obviously, we understand this is a reference to hell. And I noticed in the rest of the book, verse 4 speaks of condemnation. This is in Jude. Verse 5 speaks of those who did not believe and were destroyed. Verse 13 talks about the black darkness forever. Verse 15 talks about executing judgment. Verse 23 Talks about snatching the lost out of the fire. So we have all of these allusions here to, to, uh, to, to the concept and doctrine of hell. So I figured this is, I have to talk about it. I can't blow past those last five words in, in uh, Jude 7. This is the perfect time because it's all over the book, the perfect time to sit down and talk about the doctrine of hell. So clearly put forth in the Bible. You know, you read the Old Testament and Yahweh unleashes divine anger and vengeance over and over and over. And the thing I love about it is he's completely unapologetic about it. He's not asking for your approval or my approval. He's not trying to win a popularity contest. He says, this is who I am. This is how I deal with those who hate me. Time after time in the Old Testament, he continually and overtly calls attention to his wrath. He said, by this, you will know that I am God. But as we move into the New Testament, as you guys know, the Old Testament judgment becomes a faint, faint, just a faint glimmer as compared to the New Testament because the Son of God starts talking about eternal judgment. It's not just temporal judgment. It's eternal judgment. And who's talking about this? The Son of God. He's the one. He's the one who talks about it. It's not an apostle. You know, it's it's not a prophet. It's the Son of God. We learn more about hell from the lips of Christ than we learn from anyone else. So any false teacher who minimizes that that doctrine or ignores that doctrine he's going to have to answer you know to the angry lamb Jesus told us that eternal judgment it's without end it's timeless it's limitless it's boundless it is unceasing the most thorough revelation of eternal conscious punishment in hell it comes from the son of god it's the red words Oh, you're going to edit the red words? Okay, really? You're going to redact God by omission? I wonder how the Lord feels about that. I'm pretty sure I know. Consider this. After forever, God's wrath will only have just begun to be poured out. These are the clear Words of Jesus. The provoked holiness of God knows no bounds. It is eternal and infinite. I'm going to give you a short, short quote here by Jonathan Edwards, you know, famous 18th century American theologian. Probably the most famous theologian ever in the U.S., his comments on revelation 19:15 which talks about the fierce wrath of god he says this it would be dreadful to suffer the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God for just one moment, but you must suffer. He's talking about the occupant of of, of hell. You must suffer for all eternity. You must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with the Almighty merciless vengeance. You will absolutely lose all hope of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. And, And when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you you will know everything you have suffered is but a pinpoint compared to that which remains. Your punishment will be infinite. Some of you will recognize where that came from. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's most famous sermon. Or could we say infamous sermon? Um, the, modern church, the modern church doesn't want to hear about a God like this. Don't talk to me Don't talk to me like this. I don't want to know this. I want to, you know, believe that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. That's my theology. That's my whole theology. My pastor said it when I was eight, and that's it. Can I say to you, submit to you, that the doctrine of hell, while hated and ignored and qualified, Is indispensable to you as a Christian. Now, I'm pretty sure most of you, when you walked in here, you would not have been able to articulate that. You would not have been able to say, Well, the doctrine of hell is indispensable. You say, Well, Jim, make your point. Why is it indispensable? At least three reasons. If we do not attempt to grasp the scope, meaning, purpose, and implications of Christ's words regarding hell, we will. Never begin to get even some limited sense of his unapproachable holiness and terrifying magnificence. Hell defines the holiness of God. If we do not attempt to grasp the scope, meaning, purpose, and implications of Christ's words regarding hell, we will, secondly, never begin to regard our sin as we must You know, you preach a little God, man, you get a lot of big sin in the church. You know, you preach a little God. You end up with all kinds of sin in the church. But you will never regard your sin as you ought. you, You won't see it as monstrous. I love that word, monstrous and horrific, and a personal insult directed at Yahweh, deserving of infinite punishment. You know, David, King David employed no hyperbole as he wrote, Against you, you only have I sinned, Psalm 51 14. So, what, how does the doctrine of hell help us to, 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 to understand about our Christianity? One, it defines His holiness, two, it defines your sin. That's how heinous your sin is. It will take forever in hell. That's how serious your sin and my sin is. Thirdly, if we do not attempt to grasp the scope, meaning, purpose, and implications of Christ's words regarding hell, we will never begin to plumb the truly unfathomable height, breadth, and depth of Christ's finished work on the cross in our behalf. Consequently, our single-minded adoration, praise, devotion, commitment, obedience, and love for the Savior will be unavoidably diminished. What am I saying on this third point? The doctrine of hell defines His grace. It's back to Romans 9, 22, 23. We will behold the vessels of wrath. And we will understand, we will understand the depths of grace that God has shown us because we should be there too, but we're not because of sovereign grace. Beloved, it's just so big, you know, Christianity is just, it's just so big, it's so huge. (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's unspeakably huge. So what's at stake in a deep understanding of the doctrine of hell? Nothing less than a right comprehension of our God, our worship, our sin, and His cross. I'm going to say it again. Nothing less than a right comprehension of our God, our worship, our sin, and His cross. Most churches and denominations have jettisoned Christ's teaching on hell. But as we shall see, there's no intellectually honest way to do this. Words matter. Words mean what they mean especially when they are recorded in the Bible. While your average professed Christian in the 21st century will drive quite a ways to avoid, you know, a hellfire preacher. Don't want to sit under under that guy. Jesus Christ was just such a preacher. That's the kind of preacher he was. (laughs) If you're biblically literate, it's no surprise to you that we learn more about hell from the lips of Jesus than anyone else. We've already talked about that. In, in a very broad stroke, Jesus said hell is real. It is eternal. It is terrible. It is deserved. And once there, it is inescapable. Let me just give you the scriptures that, that, that are uh, Jesus' words with respect to hell. The Son said, hell is a place where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 13. If you want my notes, you're always welcome to them. Just ask me. I'm not going to give you the full uh, passage here. Jesus said, it is a furnace of fire, Matthew 13. Jesus said, it's a place of outer darkness, Matthew 25. Jesus said, it's a place of eternal fire, Matthew 25. Jesus said, it's a place of eternal punishment, Matthew 25. It's an unquenchable fire, Jesus said in Mark 9. It's a place where the worm does not die, Mark 9. It's a place where everyone shall be salted with fire, Mark 9. It's a place of torment and agony uh, with a fixed chasm preventing escape, Luke 16. So here's an urgently important question for the modern church. If Jesus was repeatedly and painstakingly clear about the, the reality and nature of hell, what's going on in your average pulpit? Why does your average pulpit go to such great pains to avoid preaching it? We all know why. We'll have a bigger crowd next week if we don't preach that stuff. Listen, if this doesn't drive you, if this does not drive you to the cross, then you're not understanding it. This will drive you to Christ. The high holiness of God and his wrath against sinners, haughty sinners. Man, you've you got to run to the cross. You need a great Savior. You know, if you preach the whole Bible. You realize, well, it's just, you know, it's not some casual thing I do. I belong to the church. i got to have him. I've got to have him. I've got to have him now. This is what the word of God does. It drives you. It drives you to Christ. It drives you to Christ. Yeah. Who in the right mind would edit God on this? Yeah. These guys are in big trouble. It will not go well on the last day. So either Jesus, okay, let's, let's just say this. Either Jesus is God and everything he says matters as much as anything possibly ever could, or he, he's a fraud and his words don't matter at all. So <clears throat> one would naturally expect that the average preacher pulpit denomination church would at least have some modicum of, of integrity. But something has gone wrong in the modern church. And this is why Jude, is, Jude was already saying it. You've got to contend for all of the faith. These false teachers are false by omission. They won't teach the people of God all the word of God. They're embarrassed. They don't want a God this high, this holy, this free. They don't want him and you know what that is? That's a direct insult to Yahweh. It's a direct insult to Yahweh. You go to a church like that because, you know, you like to be soft and fluffy and, and happy-clappy, as My- Miles calls it, you know? if that's if, You know, don't think that God doesn't notice what church you choose to attend. Don't think that God doesn't notice that. For He certainly does. It's interesting that Jesus most often the, the, the phrase he uses most often to describe hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why weeping? Doubtless the occupant of hell is utterly self-consumed with his own hopeless plight. But these are not tears of repentance. They are tears of self-pity. Why gnashing of teeth? This is evidence of the inhabitant's pain in hell, but also his rage. Why rage? In addition to his self, self-loathing and hatred of everyone else confined there, principally the rage of the resident in hell is directed at who? Who's that rage directed at? God. He hated God here and he hates him even more now. (laughs) This is one reason nobody comes out of hell. They hate him more now. They never stop hating him. They hate him forever. Ergo, they sin forever. You know? It's kind of what C.S. Lewis is alluding to as he describes the damned As successful rebels to the end with the doors of hell being locked on the inside. What does that mean? It means if the the price of the occupant of hell coming out is to love the Lord Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I won't come out. I hate him too much. See, I, I don't think this is appreciated. I don't think this is widely appreciated. I hate him too much. You know, people who say they're, people who act as if they're just indifferent toward God, right? That is hatred. That is hatred toward God. You know, it's like we talked about, where, I forget now where, where, where I was when I talked about it. But, you know, the thing with Kadesh Barnea, remember what he said? These people spurn me. They reject me. They despise me. That's what indifference is. That's how God interprets indifference, Right? So, there's another kind of rage in hell. Who knows what it might be? Anybody want to take a guess? What if I tell you God is omnipresent? What would, what would you... Huh? God's there. He's there. He's everywhere. You guys, you guys know the verse... Psalm 139.8, New King James Version, King David told us that if he makes his bed in hell, God is there. Some texts uh, use the word she there, but I have other texts I can share with you. Roughly 20 different passages in both the, the Old and New Testament refer to fire in describing hell. Fire is also a recurring phenomenon in the manifest presence of hell. In his omnipresence and in his fiery veracity, God is there. Charles Spurgeon, that famous great preacher, says, It seems more a wonder to meet God in hell than in heaven. He is the bliss of one and the terror of the other, right? You guys know Revelation 14:10. The Lamb is there uh, as sinners are being tormented in his presence. We don't want to talk about a God like this. At least many people don't. What if God just does whatever He pleases? I'm going to ask, is that okay with you? Is that okay with you? Is that okay with you? You know, when you get to that point, you know, when you you see Him as beautiful, and it really doesn't matter anymore, you know, you're just so hopelessly in love with this God. Yes, he magnifies himself, but you know what else he did? He, he allowed himself to be debased for the salvation of his people. So, you know, I don't make any excuses. I'm not embarrassed. He's God. You're not. Shut up. Karen hates it when I say that, but. We need to have some folks just shut up. I like what Francis Chan says about this. Yeah, this is a tough doctrine. Of course it's a tough doctrine. But he says, you know, you just got to read the Bible like an eight-year-old. You got to read the Bible like an eight-year-old. What does an eight-year-old take away from Scripture? And let's get into the Scripture. A few texts that point to the eternality of punishment in hell for all those who reject Jesus Christ. Daniel 12.2, many of those who sleep, now don't try to follow me, Uh, I'm going to go too fast, but if you want my notes, you're always welcome to them. Daniel 12.2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, they will awake to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Mark 9.42-48, hell is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 18.8, It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. I read somewhere where a guy said, and it kind of caused horror in my mind. He, he, He says, this is like being eternally deconstructed. Eternally deconstructed. As a being... If our eight-year-old is not yet convinced, here's a few more texts: Revelation 14,9 to11. If anyone worships the beast, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night." Revelation 2010 and 14 and 15. And the devil was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, if our proverbial eight year old is still unconvinced, we have Matthew 25, 46, which ends the debate. I just want you to understand there's no legitimate debate here. Now, if someone is diminishing the doctrine of hell, they're just simply a false teacher. They're, they're, they're heretical. They're apostate. Okay? Um, this, this verse, Matthew 25, 41 and 46, it removes all other credible debate. Jesus says, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and the angels. And these, the acute, these, these accursed ones, or these goats, you may remember, sheep and goats, Matthew 25, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, no one with any intellectual integrity would attempt to explain Matthew 25, 46 away. The same Greek word translated eternal is used in the same verse to describe both uh, everlasting punishment and everlasting life beyond the grave. You cannot run from this verse Jesus Christ is categorically teaching eternal conscious punishment there is no legitimate debate for those who simply receive the simple meaning of words and I want to say this to you you know hell is not a theological scare tactic um, I can't scare you into hell um, the fear of hell is not equivalent to a love for Jesus. And that's what we're talking about. Those who enter into heaven love Christ with what? All their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the doctrine of hell, as I said earlier, does drive you to a huge view of God and God's holiness and, a, and, a, and some at least small appreciation for the, 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 how monstrous our own sin is. And how great is the work of Christ. You know, I did a study on hell some years ago. And I was thinking, well, I'm going to come out thinking this. I'm going to come out feeling this way. And I came out worshiping God. I never expected it. I didn't expect to come out worshiping God like I'd never worshiped God before. I didn't expect that. But that's what happened. Because you get so high, so big, so free, so holy... There's nothing left to do, nothing left to do but worship the Lord. Certainly, thoughtful Christians struggle with this mammoth truth. It is a weighty doctrine, but the true believer never dares question the righteousness of God in it. He's God. We're not. He does not need nor seek our sanction, our counsel or our approval with how he judges rebellious angels and rebellious men. The problem for us is that we get God down on our level and we begin to think of him in terms of you know, as my seminary prof said, your average Baptist thinks God's a big guy. He's a big guy. He's kind of like me. He's a guy like me, but he's a big guy. You know, which is obviously blasphemous. You know, the psalmist says, Psalm fifty twenty one. God says this, you thought I was just like you. Right? I am not like you. I am infinitely above you beloved when you start to get this high concept of God in your heart and your mind worship happens, worship happens, humility happens you know Um, joy happens joy happens I'm not a vessel of wrath, why? because of the sovereign grace of God not because I prayed some dumb prayer that's not the reason and not because I get baptized, and not because I'm a good servant at the church, and not because, you know, I do XY as Miles says, Z. <laughs> XYZ. Sovereign grace of God. And I alluded to this earlier, one of the most common. Objections to eternal conscious punishment. It's just simply the math, right? I looked it up. Your average American will live 77.28 years. Um, and some people say, "Without why are they punished forever? I've already gave you one answer. The occupant of hell never stops sinning. He sins forever. He hates God forever. But the other answer is this, our sin against God is infinite and eternal because he is infinite and eternal. When you sin against an infinite and eternal being, the consequence is infinite and eternal. So judgment is infinite and eternal because of who God is. We're back to a a big, giant, you know, great, magnificent God, right? If you're understanding your Bible, you always get driven to that place, right? You always get driven to that place. The punishment for sinning against an infinite being must be infinite. I love what one theologian said. He said, if there were no hell revealed in Scripture, we would be compelled to infer it. Because of the greatness of God, the holiness of God, and the heinousness of our sin. We would be compelled to infer such a thing. Now, you guys have been around for a while, most of you. In reaction to Jesus' blunt, graphic, and horrifying description of eternal damnation, many have sought to try to explain it away and dispense with his words. The most prominent attempts to do this are universalism. Well, all mankind is saved because God's like that. Although God goes to great lengths and he spills a whole lot of ink saying, I'm not like that. I'm exactly not like that. Not all men will be saved unconditionally. The second one is universal restoration. At death or after some appropriate time in hell, the resurrected body and soul are redeemed. Okay, hell is not redemptive. It's not redemptive. Nobody's coming out. Nobody's coming out. Annihilationism. I know you've heard this one. At death or after some appropriate time in hell, the resurrected body and soul go out of existence. Now, there's only one big problem with all of these assertions. Who knows what it is? It ain't biblical. None of them. It's not in the Bible. It's fiction. It's fantasy. In fact... These propositions flatly contradict the words of Christ. If these things are true, we have impugned the character. Well, God is a liar if these things are true, right? He's either an inept theologian or he is a liar if any of these three propositions is true. So if you subscribe to any of these three, you have impugned the character of God, which I believe is blasphemy. Jesus is abundantly clear. And then there's that whole symbolism conjecture. You know, you hear knuckleheads say something like, well, these are just symbols. But this does not get you where you want to go. When in human language is the symbol ever more than the reality. Uh, my spiritual mentor, Jim Aleph, I love what he says about this. He says that these biblical description, descriptions of hell are merely signposts to something far worse. I think he's right. He goes on, "What if the true hell can only be experienced and never described?" I think he's right. I, I don't think it. I think it. It's impossible for it to be described on human terms. I think Elif is onto something here because this is the obvious sense one gets when reading the Bible. Have you noticed? Have you noticed? I don't know, you know, what your orbit is. But you hear hell used all the time. This word's used all the time in all kinds of different contexts. You know, it's just used as a slang word. It's a throwaway word. And I can hear Satan laughing. It's a throwaway word. Right? Well, what the hell are you doing, right? Well, that was that was that was great as hell. Whatever, you know. There's 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 endless. I, I thought I, well, I'll write these down, but they're endless. There's so many of them. Satan wants it to be a throwaway word because he doesn't want you to be concerned about it. I never use that word out of context. I never use that word out of context. Beloved, this is about the holiness of God. This is always about God. Every time we open the Bible, it's about God. It's not about any lesser thing. It's not about, you know, we all have problems, but right now it's not about your problem. It's about God. It's about the worship of God and being prostrate before God, at least in our hearts and minds, right? Right? That's what it's always about. You guys know 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor heart conceived all that God has prepared for those who love him. This is terrifyingly true for those who hate him. Right? Heart has not conceived all that God has prepared for those. So really, in one sense, apprehending the biblical teaching on hell comes down to our principal focus. Do you know what that is? If you're looking at God, you get it. You receive it. If you're looking in the mirror, you don't like it at all. And you're thinking this cannot be just. You're looking in the mirror, you're looking at your family, you're looking at your friends. If that's your focus, you're thinking eternal conscious punishment cannot be warranted. It cannot be just. It is too severe. However, if we are looking at the high and free and thrice holy God of the Bible, We are compelled to say, and I want you to hear these comments, and I'm about done. If Jesus says that eternal conscious punishment is just and right and necessary, and he does say that, how infinitely incomprehensible is the holiness of God? Again, this doctrine drives you to the God who is. Not to the God I can manage, the God who is. Secondly, if Jesus says all of this about hell, how infinitely blameworthy it must be to treat the glory of God with indifference and contempt. You know, I referenced it earlier, but you know, there's just a lot of people who are completely indifferent toward God. This is unfathomable considering, you know, the fact that (laughs) he created us. But it's just the hard heart, the hard, dark, dead heart of man. If Jesus has said all of this about hell, what infinite glory and purity God must possess that everlasting suffering is the fitting punishment for dishonoring and disobeying him. You see where I'm going? This is taking us to this really high view of God. Right, Really high view of God. It's where the church is supposed to be always looking. Lastly, if Jesus said all of this about hell, and he did, what a stunning, shocking, amazing, astonishing, unbelievable thing Jesus Christ has done in taking my sin and God's wrath upon himself. I'm going to finish up over in Luke 16. You can go with me if you want. It's a familiar passage, Luke 16. I'm going to start in verse 22. Luke 16, verse 22. These are the red words. Luke 16, verse 22. Now it came about, well first Jesus tells us that there's a rich man and a poor man, and the poor man is named Lazarus. So this is what we know going into verse 22. Now it came about that the poor man died, and He was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom and the rich man also died and he was buried. And in Hades, of course, Hades is the precursor to hell. That's where that's where the lost souls are now. They'll be cast into hell at the final judgment. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Lazarus again is the poor man. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted and comforted here and you, are being, and you are in agony, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said... Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What did he just say? What's the whole focus here? What's the focus? I know there are, many, there are several focuses we could look at here, but, 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 but I'm looking at this one here that, that most people omit. What does he say there? you got to look at the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? Right? Moses and the prophets, that was the Word of God they had inscripted at that time. You have to look at the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? That's what Jesus is saying. man. And then he goes on Verse 30, but he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But have they repented? Who came back from the dead? Have they repented? And Jesus says this. These are Jesus' words in the mouth of Abraham. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither Will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead? Again, this highlights the cold, dead heart of mankind. I think it's called total depravity, if I recall. Total depravity. Let everyone be careful to hear the word of God. I say to you, have you been careful To hear the word of God this morning. And will you share this word with your friends and your neighbors and your colleagues and your family? If they're going to a happy, clappy church or any other pseudo denomination, pseudo church, they're likely pretty much unaware of what we have just talked about. Jesus is saying, Let all men everywhere hear the word of God, and to every person who will not, who is wholly indifferent toward the Son, who proactively insults the Messiah with their pseudo Christianity, who passively spurns Jesus in both word and deed. 20th century English theologian A.W. Pink says it perfectly, right? Pink says, Why then should you not suffer wrath as great as the grace and love which you rejected? Amen? If you're going to reject this, massive, you know, this, this ma- massive message of love and grace, why should you not have wrath? Why should you not have infinite wrath? You have spurned infinite grace and mercy. So, what if... God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, that, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Romans 9, 22 and 23. I'm going to ask you, is it OK with you if God does business like this? Is it OK with you? And I, I, and I lovingly say, whether it's okay or not, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's how he does business. It's how he does business. It's who God has declared himself to be. He does whatever he pleases. Let's pray together.